0: Hey everyone, I'm glad that you've joined us online today. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ben, I'm the community pastor here, and I'm also a parent. I don't know if I've got any fellow parents online right now, but I want to share with you one of my own little potty training stories. Recently, Silas, our eldest son, has started potty training, and it's been quite an experience as some of you may know. Sometimes when he wants to go to the toilet, he'll take me and we'll go there. And he does a poop in the potty or a pee in the potty. And what he does every time is he, he stands up off the potty. He smiles at me with this big grin in his teeth and he claps his hands. He does like a little celebration that he's done a poop or a pee in the potty. Now, for me, I have a different criteria of success his criteria of success is whether he's re- left something pretty disgusting in the potty for his dad to clean up. But for me, the goal of this training is not that he'd do a poop or a pee in the potty. The goal is that he can move on from nappies and have undies and just keep them clean and dry. So sometimes when he gets up and he starts clapping his hands, we just keep moving forward through the routine. He washes his hands, we get his clothes on, and I just point out to him, "Hey, look at your pants." They're clean and dry. Now we clap. Now we celebrate. We've got a different criteria for success. Now, I promise this does actually have something to do with our chapter this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But before I come to that and make that link, I just want to help us get our bearings on this letter as a whole. You see, we're entering into a seven-week series today called People of the Future, And we're going to be traveling through 1 Thessalonians together. And the reason that we've called this series People of the Future is not just because there are so many references to the future, but because Paul was writing to a people who were persecuted, who were suffering, and he knew that resilience and endurance and perseverance would not come to them by focusing on the present, would not come to them by looking inside themselves. It would come by focusing on the future, God's promised future in Jesus. So we as a church, we want to be people of the future. Now, when we look at the letter itself, it's important to ask a few questions about who wrote it, who received it, and why it was written. So first of all, who wrote it? Well, in the first verse, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So who wrote it? Well, it was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They wrote this as a team, but throughout the letter we see that Paul takes a lead role. At times he takes on the first person. He says, I, Paul, tried to come to you again and again. So Paul's like the lead theologian among these team of authors who are writing this letter back to this beloved church of theirs. Who received it? Well, it was a church in a place called Thessalonica. On the screen, you can see a map that's there. Now, you can see that the gospel, which started in Jerusalem, has traveled a long way from Jerusalem now. It's traveled all the way up to Macedonia, to a city called Thessalonica. Now, this city was extremely religious. They had they believed in many gods, like most people did in that time, and in that area. And they had gods for the ocean. They'd pray to that god and tell them that they would do things that they kept them safe on their ocean journeys. They'd have a god called Aphrodites for beauty and sex, and, and they would do things for Aphrodite and pray to her and worship her in hope that she would give them a husband or give them fertility or something like that. So they had different gods to fulfill different needs that they had. And one of the things is it's so different to what we're used to today because in Australia, we live in a secular society. So basically, the message we get is religion isn't really true. But if you want to believe it, that's fine. Just keep it in your own private sphere. Keep it in your mind. Keep it in your house. Keep it in your private, personal life. But for them, in this city, religion was tied up with life itself. It was tied up with their politics you see, this city had been conquered earlier by the Roman Empire. And one of the things that this city tried to do to try and get Rome's favor was basically participate in Roman worship. And one of the things that Rome did was say, hey, our Caesars, our kings, they're actually divine. So this city treated Caesar as if he was divine, as if he was a god. So you can imagine what it would be like for a person in that environment to say, actually, I've come to believe that Jesus alone is God, that Jesus alone is Lord and King. It could bring some serious persecution. As for the actual specific situation of the letter, you can read a bit about it in Acts chapter 17. You can see a little map, a different map on the screen right now. And you can see this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy's missionary journeys. They'd come from Philippi, they'd preached the gospel there, and then they went on to Thessalonica, preached the gospel then. In Acts 17, it says they did this for three weeks. They preached the gospel. Some people got saved. They put their faith in Jesus. They became convinced that this was true. But others in the city were jealous about this. So they started a mob. They started a riot. They got the city officials' attention, and they said to them, look at what these men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are doing. They are defying Caesar's decrees Saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the city officials were horrified. All the people were horrified. Like, guys, you're going to get us in trouble with Rome. So, Paul, Silas, and Timothy's lives were in danger. So, that very night, the Thessalonian church, under the cover of darkness, sent Paul, Silas, and Timothy away to keep them safe. But we've got to recognize that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were only there for about three weeks. This was a new church, a baby church They'd only just had a few weeks to learn about the gospel, to learn about Jesus, who they were meant to be, what the scriptures were about. Three weeks under this kind of persecution and hostility. And so understandably, Paul and his team are, are worried about this church. They're concerned about this church. And reading between the lines of the letter, it looks like the locals were spreading lies about Paul, saying that he didn't really love them. He was just another one of these itinerant preachers that traveled around looking for money by selling people a false message. And Paul wanted to counteract that. He was worried about this church and he wanted to reassure them that when they accepted the gospel, they made the right decision. It's a true message and that they were on the right track as a church even though they were suffering so horribly. But that's something we wonder about today sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we wonder as people, am I on the right track? When we look down at our phones and our social media feeds or at the lives of others, sometimes we ask, am I on the right track? Am I successful? Am I headed in the right direction? I know sometimes that question creates a lot of anxiety for people especially our younger generation, the next generation coming through Gen Z, about teens to early twenties. One study actually found that this generation, while they're motivated to be super successful, are actually feeling fairly anxious and under a lot of pressure. One in four feel anxious and two in five feel pressure to succeed. And I wondered what their picture of success was. So I spoke to a few people from Gen Z about this. And one said, well, the success message is all through social media, TikTok, Instagram. There's a constant stream of content explaining how you're a failure if you aren't creating seven different streams of income and becoming a self-made millionaire before 30. How if you're not successful, you're nothing. I'd say most, if not all Gen Z feels it. Now, this isn't what everyone from Gen Z said. But that's a pretty heavy expectation for our young people, isn't it? Especially when to be successful is to be a millionaire by 30. And this shows that sometimes the reason we are so anxious and stressed is because we have the wrong criteria for success. We have the wrong idea of what success is. You see, we're just like my son who, after potty training... When he does a poop in the in the potty, he gets up and he claps his hands joyfully. But it's the wrong moment to clap. That's not the criteria for success. It's something different. It's keeping himself clean and dry. And sometimes we're like these children who focus on the wrong criteria and we clap our hands at the wrong moments. We work seventy-hour weeks and we look at ourselves and we clap our hands. We get a good tax return and we clap our hands. We get a shiny new car, and we clap our hands. The things we celebrate and get excited about can often reveal what we believe success is. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things that I mentioned are not necessarily bad things. Some of them are great things. Praise God if you get a good tax return. That's wonderful. But my point is, and I want to be clear on this, is that they are not markers of success. In the eyes of Jesus, money, wealth, materialism are not markers of success. If we allow wealth to become our success criteria, or anything else for that matter, influence, beauty, it actually puts us under pressure. It leads to anxiety because these things can't satisfy the deeper longing of the heart. These aren't things we were created to base our lives upon. No amount of money will be enough. If we make money, our success criteria will either crush ourselves trying to get enough of it, or our egos will be inflated once we have it. Or we'll never be satisfied that we have enough and we'll just keep going down that track. But is that really the right track? Is that really the right criteria to show us that we're successful as people? Secondly, I would add, if we measured the Thessalonian church by that criteria, they failed miserably. They weren't wealthy. They weren't impressive in the world's eyes. But when Paul writes to them... For some reason, he is overjoyed. He's rejoicing in them. He's like a father clapping his hands, excited about what's happening in this church. How can that be? It's because he had the right criteria of success. When we get our criteria right, we will clap our hands at the right times, and we will discover, like the Thessalonians did, what will actually keep us going when times are tough and when money isn't rolling in and when we are suffering. 1 Thessalonians chapter one gives us the right criteria to help us stay on the right track as people and as a church. And there are three different sections where Paul kind of claps his hands over this church. He's celebrating with them. There are three different things that tell us we're on the right track, the track to true success. The first thing that Paul points out to tell us we're on the right track is that when, it's when our lives bear the fruit of the gospel. We're on the right track when our lives bear the fruit of the gospel. Let me read to you the first few verses. He says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, we know you guys are loved and chosen by God, that they are on the right track in God's eyes. You know, I think sometimes as Christians in Australia, we might expect to know we're chosen and loved by God when he makes us comfortable when things are going well in our eyes, when he gives us the Australian dream, when we can afford the nice home that we want, the nice cars that we want, the nice clothes that we want, a great retirement, a new caravan, whatever it might be. I think we're tempted to believe that in those times, God loves us more, that we're on the right track. But that's not what he says at all. These Thessalonians are in deep strife. Reading the letter, it seems like some of them have gotten martyred. But Paul knows they are on the right track in the eyes of God. Why? Well, he tells us in verses 3 to 5. He uses gospel criteria to point out gospel fruit in their lives. He measures their success in this way. Here's a little list on the screen for you now. He talks about the fact in verse 3 that, they have, that they, he remembers when he was with them that they worked from faith. It was a work produced by faith that there was a labor among them prompted by love, that there was endurance inspired by hope. And he remembered that the gospel came to them with power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. In other words, they were on the right track because their lives were bearing the fruit of the gospel. Paul and his team knew that the gospel didn't just fall on deaf ears when they preached to these guys, It didn't just come to them in words, it came with power. Probably miracles, signs, wonders. And Paul says the Holy Spirit came with it and gave these Thessalonians a deep conviction that this message was true, that this message was worth dying for. The gospel was at work in them. Paul was rejoicing. Paul says this in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 13, he said, When you received the word of God, the gospel, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul was rejoicing not because they had comfortable lives, far from it, but because the gospel was succeeding in their hearts It was bearing fruit in their lives. And he summarizes that fruit as faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. They're very Christian-sounding words, aren't they? But what do they actually mean? Well, let's actually define them and talk about what they would look like in our lives. First, he talks about faith. Faith, in this case, means trust, specifically trust in the gospel. And that's why Paul says later in verse 14 of chapter 4, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's the same root Greek word involved in those things. The Greek word for faith is pistis. The Greek word for believe is pistuo. Same sort of thing going on. This is what faith is. It's trust. It's belief that Jesus died and rose again. And Paul says this gospel they believe in, this, this faith, this trust, produces work. Like you said, we remember your work produced by faith in verse 3. Now, my question is, what kind of work? Well, the Greek word there doesn't give us any answers. It just means general activity, just any kind of work. Now, there are lots of reasons why we work, when you think about it. For why we set alarms, write emails, change nappies, and mow lawns. But God wants the gospel our faith to be the motivation for our work. He wants that to be the producer of our work. Now you might that might be a little bit confusing. How does faith in the gospel change the way I mow my lawn? Well, let me explain that to you. There are many different motivations why I can mow my lawn. I can mow my lawn from envy because I'm envious of my neighbor's lawns and I want to beat the Joneses, I want mine to look better. I can mow my lawn out of fear because it's getting really long and I wonder if my landlord's gonna get, get me in trouble soon. So I better, I better mow it. I can mow my lawn out of a sense of duty. I've just gotta mow it, gotta get it done. Oh, let's just do it. Or I can mow my lawn through faith. I can mow my lawn because of the gospel. <laughs> How is that the case? Well, I believe in a gospel that tells me that the king of all kings left his throne entered this world to become a servant for all. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when I look at the way that he gave his life for me, that moves me. And it makes me want to be a servant too. It makes me want to serve my family by just maintaining the lawn for the house and to serve my landlord by taking care of the property that I'm in. The gospel can change the way you work. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, it says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I wonder if God just published the results of your life for a day. He just looked at your life for a day. Would he see faith in what you were doing? Does the gospel, does your faith in Jesus change anything about what you do each day in your work, in your everyday life? What is motivating your work? When our faith is in the gospel, it changes the way we work. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he mentions faith. Next, he defines love. The Greek word itself doesn't refer to romantic feelings. It means to have rather a a warm desire, so it's still emotional, but this warm affection for others, this warm desire to see good come to them. And Paul talks about how the Thessalonians' labor was prompted by this kind of love. Now, this is a different Greek word than the one used before for work. This is actually a different word for the the word labor. And this one talks about burdensome work, hard labor, the kind of work that really requires you to love someone if you're going to do it. And in the context of this letter, it actually refers to gospel work. Gospel work is labor. Gospel work is hard work because it's heart work. Gospel work is hard work because it's heart work. And I wonder if there's anyone in this church that you love enough to do gospel work with them. What do I mean? What does that look like? Well, is there anyone in this church that you love and know enough to move past the small talk and into the real mess of their lives and to just be a companion with them in that? to love them in that, that, to pray with them in that, to encourage them in that. Is there anyone in this church that you love enough that if you see them going off onto the wrong track, you have the courage to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm a fellow sinner. I've been saved by grace by God, but we know each other. I love you. And I'd really like to help you in this area if you're willing to let me. Can I walk alongside you? That's gospel work. It's hard work, Because it's heart work. That's what Paul means by labor prompted by love. So we've got the gospel fruit of faith, the gospel fruit of love, and last, Paul speaks of hope. Now, when we use the word hope, we usually think of optimism. I hope the weather will be good this weekend. I hope the Broncos will win their next game. I hope that when it's my turn to take Silas to the potty, he does a number one, not a number two. Hope. But when Paul speaks about hope, he is referring to a certain future. And this is what Christian hope is. It is the confident expectation of Jesus' return. It is the assurance that Jesus will one day return and destroy death and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this is why Paul says that the Thessalonians' endurance was inspired by hope in verse 3. The hope of the gospel is what gave them what they needed to face suffering well. And in fact, it was the way that this church suffered that Paul pointed to next to encourage them they were on the right track. We can know that our lives are on the right track when our lives bear the fruit of the gospel we can also know we're on the right track when our lives imitate the gospel, when our lives imitate the gospel. I'll explain what that means in a moment, but I'm just going to set it up by asking you a question. Here's the question. Do you believe Jesus was loved by God? Do you believe Jesus was on the right track as a person, that he succeeded in life and that he was loved by the Father? If so, how then do you explain his suffering? How do you reconcile the two? Jesus suffered. The Bible talks about him as a man of sorrows. He suffered. He was opposed many times in his life, even by his family. And he was put under a false trial. And he was murdered cruelly. And and my question to you is, did God ever cease to love his son? Did Jesus ever cease to be on the right track? And the answer, of course, if if you're a Christian, is no. He was always on the right track. He was always loved by God. He was always doing God's will. You see, suffering and difficulty are not signs that we're outside of God's love or that we're on the wrong track. This is the message of verses 5 to 6. Paul says, "You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit." You know, at one stage in his ministry, Paul wanted to go back and revisit some of the churches and strengthen them. And to strengthen them, this was the message that he shared with them. Acts 14:22. Guys, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Not an easy message, but a truthful message shared in love. And you know, if that's the case, we know we are on the right track when our lives imitate the gospel of God's suffering son. When our lives are following a path similar to Jesus's, a path that led to crucifixion, It was a track that was difficult and painful at times, but the good news is that it was a track that ended in resurrection. It was a track that ended in victory. It's a track that, while painful, ends eventually in everlasting joy and fullness of life forever. This is where the track of the gospel Leads us. And this is how we cultivate joy in the midst of suffering. We don't cultivate joy by being fake about our emotions, by shoving them down. We cultivate joy by what they did, by welcoming the message, the gospel. As we welcome and dwell on the good news of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes alongside this message, testifies to us that this is true, and gives us joy. Joy. Because the gospel tells you that right now, if your faith is in Jesus, you are loved. That right now, wherever you are at, however messy your life may be, the King of Kings accepts you. This gospel tells you that the King of Heaven left his throne, took on the weakness of our humanity. Entered into our suffering, preached good news, died naked, mocked, spat upon, while bearing your sin and your shame. This gospel tells you that this Son of God, He paid your sin debt to the full, that He secured your right to be called a child of God forever, to be called an heir of the new creation. And this son will one day return and he will take you by the hand and he will take you into a reality that is so glorious that your worst nightmares will feel like distant dreams. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that can produce joy even in the midst of severe suffering. And this is why the gospel is so central. This is why our new value statements as a church, we've said that we want to be gospel focused. When we focus on the gospel, it produces joy even in the midst of suffering because the news is so good, so trustworthy, and so comprehensive. And when others see this kind of joy in us in times of hardship, It testifies greatly. It's a powerful witness. You know, this is exactly the effect that the Thessalonians were having on others. Their joyful resilience was having a gospel impact on others. And this is the final criteria Paul points to in order to show that they were on the right track as God's people. We're on the right track when our lives bear the fruit of the gospel, when our lives imitate the gospel and when our lives have gospel impact. Let me read verses seven to 10 to you. Paul says to these Thessalonians, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In these verses, Paul says the Thessalonian church were known for two things. They were known for lives shaped by the gospel, and they were known for mouths filled with the gospel. First, they had gospel impact because their lives were shaped by the gospel of God's suffering son. We just mentioned the fact that they had this joy, this latent joy in the midst of severe suffering. It testified greatly. One scholar notes that verse 7 is the only text in the New Testament where a whole congregation is viewed as a model for other churches. This was an exceptional church in the way they responded to persecution. Persecution. This church had an impact because they didn't just welcome the gospel, but as they welcomed it and cultivated it, they actually started to embody the gospel story themselves. Paul share, shares the impact they were having on others, not to inflate their egos, but to encourage them to keep going in persecution. They could be reassured they were on the right track despite all of their suffering because their lives were having gospel impact. But the gospel wasn't just shaping their attitudes and actions. It was filling their mouths with a message. They were known for sharing the gospel. Verse 8 says, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They had welcomed the gospel into their church. They were gospel focused and their lives were bearing fruit. They were following Jesus' example in suffering and they were sharing his gospel with others. You know you are on the right track when as a church, the gospel so shapes and fills you that it's having an impact on your neighbors. You know, I just want to share with you guys the impact that you've had on me. I'm so thankful for the work that I see God doing among us here in our church and, and some of the things I think about, as I think about the text and think about work produced by faith, I think about people like our elders who work hard behind the scenes, have long meetings into the night, praying for us, making sure that our building is kept in order, making sure that budgets and finances are running in order. When I think about labor prompted by love, I think about a time recently when I was walking out at the end of a service and I looked over at our prayer team and I saw someone listening with empathy to someone who seemed like they were suffering and pray for them. I thought that was beautiful gospel work to see that. One of the encouraging messages I've been getting from newcomers a lot lately is that they feel welcomed here, that this feels like a warm community, an inviting community. I see love at work in us and I see endurance inspired by hope here in our church. Sunday after Sunday, there are some of you who come along, even though you've been battling cancer for years, even though you've been battling sickness and disease or some sort of hardship for years, and I look around and I see you worshiping God with a smile on your face, and it really does inspire me. I'm so thankful for you guys. And I see gospel impact coming out of this church. I just want to share a quick story with you. Recently, myself and our deacon, Alayda, we went to a meeting at our local neighborhood center. It's called Encircle. And as far as I know, this is a secular organization. They don't have any faith basis. And one of the staff members came up to us and, and said to us, hey, um, our CEO and and we've heard about a really wonderful success story coming out of your church. Um, We've been working with a family in the community. They came along to your church. They received support from you guys. And it's just such a wonderful success to see where they are at right now. And we would love to do a case study on your church and, and what you guys did. And I just thought, isn't that wonderful that a secular organization sees the impact, the gospel impact that we're having, and they want to know what we're doing. We might not be a perfect church, but it tells me that we're on the right track. And you can know that our church and your life is on the right track when it is shaped by and built upon the gospel. If we will welcome the gospel in this church if we will base our lives on it, embody it, share it, we will know that we are on the right track. And that kind of confidence, that kind of peace, that kind of knowledge that you are doing okay and you're, on, you're headed in the right direction, it's worth its weight in, our, in gold. So let's build our lives as a church and as individuals on the gospel together.